you would be with me this morning and help me to be faithful to your your scriptures. Help me to unpack the the treasures that that you've given us in them. And and I pray, Lord, that that folks would hear from you and and come to know Jesus more intimately this morning. I pray that you would prepare the hearts of the folks who are here and and help them to to um, just be receptive to to your spirit and to the seeds that that are planted through your word. And I pray that it would come back as a great harvest. Um, help me to help me to not get in the way of what you do this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. So um, we're working our way through the book of Judges right now. And I before I dive into that, I got a I got a story. Um, it's not really a story; it's an illustration. Um, I, I for the last almost a month now, I've been uh, participating in this thing, the uh, the Great Cycling Challenge. It's like a fundraiser for fighting children's cancer, and and what it is is it's you know like they do walkathons and stuff like that. This is a bicycle thing, and so I have to go out and I have to ride 200 miles in the month of June, and I've been collecting donations online and all that, and and um, I've been working on this, and I I every Every time I go out and ride in Big Sandy, like we have, we have very few paved roads. I know it's a shock, um, and and the paved roads that we have, um, like are are very light on shoulder, and and sometimes have very sharp turns. I've driven out toward what is that Judith Landing, you know, where the corners are nice and sharp, and people do 140 on the way, because um, you can. I, uh, <laughs> the. Uh, <laughs> The, the, so, so I usually ride on Kenilworth because it's straight, right? And you can see about four miles out. If I get run over on that, I'm, somebody's trying to kill me. Um, and and so, so I've been doing this Kenilworth thing, and, and um, I, I never realized driving it, but the first, like, if you're heading out of town, the first, like, four miles of Kenilworth is uphill, right? And about half the summer, the wind comes from the west to the east, and so for the first, like, four miles, I'm kind of trudging uphill, right? And on a bicycle, into the wind, you don't think it's a lot, except in Montana we have 20-mile-an-hour winds on a regular basis. And so, like, if I'm going 20 and I hit a 20-mile-an-hour wind, you know, it, suddenly I'm going five, you know, and, and uphill and everything else both ways. Um, but, but the best part, the best part of that is that on the end – on the end of that, that line, you know, I'll go out 10 miles, and I'll turn around, and then what's going for me? The wind is behind me, and it's all downhill. And actually, there are spots on Kenilworth. I once, I once cleared 40 miles an hour with the wind at my back coming back into town. Um, I mean, like, once you get going downhill and you got something pushing you, like, it, it's amazing how much of a difference that makes. And so in, one, you know, the same spot going one way, I'll be going you know, eight. And then on the way back, I think 35 is more common. I think I did 35 on, uh, on Thursday coming back into town. And, and it just, it's downhill as fast, isn't it? Um, I'm sure if any of y'all ever jogged, I know once in a while Mark goes jogging <laughs> to the mailbox. Um, <laughs> he, he has, we've talked about it. Um, and and uh, he's the only guy I know who carries a gun when he goes jogging. Um, <laughs> That I know of, <laughs> um, but but downhill, running downhill is easier, right? Because you got all this stuff working for you. Now we're we're working our way through the book of Judges, and one of the things that we've talked about with Judges 
is that there is this ongoing theme in the book, okay? And as you interpret passages in the book, you have to, like, look at them in terms of the theme and see how they all fit together. For Judges, the theme is sort of how um, the nation of Israel, like, declined and came apart under its own weight, right? Like, when, when they were the tribes before they had kings, when God was their king, the nation started out really well. The early judges were fantastic. And then you get to the last judges, and they're progressively worse, right? Like they get crummier and crummier and crummier and crummier until you get to Samson, who um, had the most potential but was really handily the least godly of the judges and actually the least successful. Um, And so last week we talked about a fellow who um, won a battle, right, like did this great thing, and then as as a way of showing God that he appreciated the help with the battle, he set his daughter on fire as a sacrifice, which is this horrible sin. And then when, when he was confronted by some neighboring, like, family members, he, like, slaughtered them, right? <laughs> and so, like, he delivered the nation and then was, like, horrible, right? And this is, this is the point in the book where it's, they're at the bottom of the hill. Got it? <laughs> like, the wind is behind them. They're, they've got momentum, and they are, like, coasting into rotten. Everybody with me? It's not a very, like, cheerful thing, um, but it's important to understand, like, Judges is all about the decline. The one high point, actually, there's an exception, and I have to explain this. In the middle of the book, like, it's bad, or great, good, not so good, significantly not good, awful, and then Deborah, who's, like, the best one. Um, and, and that's kind of cool, right? Like, and the reason that that was was Deborah was the only woman who was a judge, and it was during a time when there were no men who were worthy to lead the nation. And, in fact, when Deborah, like, like sends the army out to fight, the general says, well, I'm not going out to fight without you. You've got to go with me. I, men, if you, if you need to go out and face a guy in the parking lot and you've got to have your wife hold your purse, you've got a problem. <laughs> Everybody with me? Like, and so, like, this is all about the decline of the people. That's the major theme. We're at the end. And, like, the weird thing with Judges, and it's, it's not exactly chronological. There's a little bit of, like, overlap and mix-up. We're going to look at three guys, and they are right during the time of Samson. The first one is probably Judge when Samson was born, and, and they're sort of, like, overlapping with Samson's life. And that will make sense in a little bit, and that's important. But so the people are there for a change. There's a time of relative peace, and we have the minor judges. There are three groups of minor judges in the book, right? And these are guys who get a sentence or two, right? The first guy is a fellow named Shamgar who, like, is awesome, right? The second minor judge cycle is two guys, and they don't even merit, like, their names are mentioned. I don't remember them because, like, the whole point of those two guys is they didn't do anything. Like, they didn't, weren't bad, but they really didn't do much, right? The third group of minor judges, there's three of them. See the point? One, two, and then three. Thanks, Carly. <laughs> um, and so there's kind of a, a, a build here, right? Like, the authors, ancient authors did that kind of thing on purpose. So there's three of them. And the three of them, like, if the pattern follows, they're, they're probably not going to be real good. Okay, so let's dig into this. The men of Ephraim were called to arms. That was, this is actually last week's uh, uh, 8 to 15. What happened there? Um, (laughs) 
After him is... <laughs> All right, regroup. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel for seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. Now, that's 60 kids, right? I've been in Montana a little while. Um, and I, I've met folks at the nursing home who had like 15, right? But 60 is a big number, right? What can we guess from that number? That he had lots and lots of wives. Actually, I think the technical term is a harem. Um, So we've reached the point now where the men who are judging Israel have transitioned from being judges like religious leaders to being knockoff kings, right? Um, Because that's what kings did. It was part of how you established yourself. You had lots of wives, and that way you had lots of children. And if you had lots of children, you had successors, right? Um, there are lots of problems that happen in history when kings don't produce heirs. And so we've, what we're seeing here is we're seeing the judges start saying, well, hey, how about if my kid takes over when I'm done? And they start setting it up for that. Um, there's trends of this earlier. Gideon, who's like kind of a hero in, in, in the book of Judges, he actually does some of this, where he starts setting his son up as king, and he builds him a palace and actually names him something that, like, the son's name is, my son should be king of Israel, basically. Like, and so this is hitting an extreme point where this guy is like, I'm going to have a whole mess of children by my harem, and we're going to start setting up shop, and we're going to be royalty, right? Now, that seems like a jump until there's another detail that we're given. What's the other detail? Like, he gets them all married. But he doesn't get them married locally. He goes out and he trades his children off to neighboring communities in order to build power. Because that's, I mean, like you see this in, um, it's, it's easier to like see in medieval era, right? Where the king of France would marry his daughter off to the king of England. Or Henry VIII, actually, his first wife was the, uh, the sister of the king of Spain. Um, I think that's probably right. Um, and so, like, he married her so that they could establish a stronger relationship with Spain, which worked really well until he divorced her and sent her to a convent. Um, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> um, but, but that's what you would do. You would marry off. And so when it says he has 30 sons and 30 daughters, and he sent his daughters out to marry other folks, and he imported daughters for his sons, what he's doing is he's kingdom building, right? He's establishing power in order to be king next, right? That's all we're told about him. Every other, king, every other judge fights a battle, right? Except for the second group of minor judges. But every other one, they fight battles. They chase off oppressors. And actually, it's funny. There are some commentaries that say, well, this was a time of peace, so they didn't have to fight. Actually, this is the time when Samson was born. Samson was born like while the Philistines were invading southern Israel. And they were like, like oppressing the Jewish people in the south. Amazingly enough, these guys are more toward the north, and they didn't care. Why? Because they were build, building a kingdom. That's those guys' problem. So this guy has a job. He doesn't do it, but he does build a kingdom. Um, the reason like this is important is this is like the fast track to the bottom. Because God had told his people, look, I'm your king. 
You don't need a person to stand in my spot. You don't need to worship a man. You don't need to, you know, any other stuff. I'm your king. And we see where his own representatives are starting to make themselves into kings. After him, Elam the Zebulonite, fun words in Hebrew, uh, judged Israel. And he judged Israel for ten years. Then Elam the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulon. Flyover country, right? Is there anything there? Like it seems like there's nothing here except, right, there's a trick here. Um, and John might catch this. Um, originally when the Bible was written, the, the, the technology of language was very simple, right? The written word did not originally have vowels, right? We all know those, A-E-I-O-U. I think there's a few more in Hebrew. Um, and actually, the vowels were not added to the Hebrew text until much, much later. And so this was written, like, in what's, this is one of the Masoretic texts. It means it's one of the, like, authoritative books. And they would, like, historians have kind of guessed as to what the words are, where the vowels go, based on what other Jewish folks wrote over time. And so we see where this guy, Elon, is buried in Adrilon. Um now, the word here, I wish I had a laser pointer. This would be a lot cooler. See the, see the consonants, right? Not the dots, right? Because the dots are the vowels. The consonants are the solid letters, right? And that's Hebrew for Elon. How many folks can read that? Just not many. Um, but I bet you don't have to read carefully to catch the difference. Do you see it? It's the same word. This is a guy who shows up, is the boss for about 10 years, and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start changing city names and naming them after myself, right? This is a little like um, there's a city, St. Petersburg, which for about 60, 70 years was named Leningrad, right? How would you know that, Michael? Um, <laughs> um, because what happened was the, the Russians came along, they, 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 or the Soviets, the communists, took over, and they renamed big cities after, like, guys they really loved or were really afraid of. Um, and so, like, you have cities like Stalingrad and Leningrad and all this, or um, Istanbul, which became Constantinople, which is actually just a misspelling of city in Greek. Um, I looked it up because I was going to use that originally. Um, but, but what happened is this guy, Elon, starts establishing his name by changing the names of the cities after himself. Um, and, it, and so, mind you, this isn't a time of peace. This is a time when raiders are coming into the southern part of the country, killing the Jewish people, taking them away as slaves, stealing from them, like robbing them blind, and like oppressing them severely. And Elon is building a kingdom um, because he is not concerned about what's going on around him. He's concerned about Elon, right? Same as the guy before him, right? Not concerned about the kingdom, concerned about how many kids can I marry off to establish a kingdom? Um, and our last of the three judges, this could theoretically be a short sermon. We'll see. Um, don't laugh. <laughs> After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, Pirathonite, I am awful at Hebrew, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons, even more children, who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel for eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, died and was buried at Pirathon and the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. 
Um, we get one more weird little detail here, right? Donkeys. That's right. Um, and donkeys don't seem particularly impressive, do they? I mean, like, when I think of somebody riding a nice animal, I assume a horse, right? Unless you live in a horrible desert country where nobody in their right mind would live for any reason, right? Then you need something that can actually eat stuff that's coming out of the ground, in which case a donkey can eat almost anything. And in fact, during this area, to own a donkey to travel around on meant that you had a bit of money. And actually, if you were really wealthy, you would have a white donkey. I didn't even know white donkeys were a thing until I researched this. Um, and in this part of the world, there's like a technical term for it, the Levant. In the Levant during this era, monarchs rode donkeys. Like it was a symbol of like authority for a king to ride around on a donkey. Um, because like you had horses, you had donkeys, and you had camels, and camels are kind of finicky and they're a little more difficult to deal with. The luxury sedan of the era, the Rolls Royce of the era, was the white donkey. Um, and so this man not only had one to ride on himself, we can assume, right? But he had 70 of them for his kids and grandkids, right? I mean, like, it's, it's – um, I read an article about uh, Mike Tyson during, like, the, the pinnacle of his wealth and career where he was driving, like, a Ferrari or something, and he got tired of driving stick shift. And so he pulled into a, a Mercedes dealership and bought a Mercedes and drove out in it so he wouldn't have to drive stick anymore. Um, like, this is the – like, think wealth at an extreme degree or, like – um, who's the talk, uh, Jay Leno, who owns like thousands of cars, right? I mean, literally more cars than he could reasonably drive because he collects them because he is super wealthy. Um, this is a man who um, not only did he have a lot of children, which isn't bad, but it also means he had a harem. Um, he established his like family in, in, a, in a way that represented them as royalty. And so what we're seeing here is, we're seeing the judges step up and say, you know what? Yeah, th this God guy is okay, but I think we should, run the, we should run the show. I think my kids should run the show. I think my grandkids should run the show. And they start trying to edge God out in order to take over. Everybody with me? And this is not a small deal. It's actually a huge deal. Um, when we get to Saul, um, who will be the first king of Israel... Saul, um, Saul basically gets kicked to the curb because he tries to edge God out in a lot of ways. He doesn't want to do things God's way. He does them his way, and it gets him in trouble. Um, and so, like, these three judges sort of, like, solid, like, embody that. They're at the bottom of the hill. They're going full force. The wind is at their back, and they're heading right into a brick wall um, or the back of a combine. That's always the fear is you overtake a combine. Um, Real quick, so what's the problem here? Uh, Matthew 13, 3 to 9, this is a parable from Jesus, right? And I started looking at how to tie this in and what to talk about. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some, uh, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them, and other seeds fell along the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, when the sun rose and they were scorched. Um, and since they had no root, they withered away. And now here's the important part. Other seeds fell amongst thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirty. Um, he who has ears, let them hear. This is before the era of spraying. 
and a couple years before the air drill was invented, right? And so as this guy is out there seeding, he's kind of tossing, right? And as he's tossing, some of these seeds land amongst thorns, um, and the, the, the stuff that grows up, the weeds choke it out. It's like my garden, right? Um, where there's just so much other junk there that, like, the, the little hot peppers and the, and the, um, the marshmallow flowers and stuff, whatever we're growing, um, like, has no chance of growing. And, and later on, like, the disciples ask him, well, what, can you tell us what this parable meant? And he explains the whole thing, but here's the important part. As for what was sown amongst thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. Um, these three judges, what we're seeing here is we're seeing a group of guys that God picked, right? These aren't guys who just showed up and said, I'm judge. These are people that God picked out who had a specific job to do and not a small job. This is a huge job. They're taking care of God's people. Like, I don't know, Jess and I, for, for, for our kids, we have like four people who babysit for us. Is it even four? It might be three. Like, we're very choosy about babysitters. And it's not that we don't love everyone here or anything like that. It's, like, they're precious, right? And it takes a lot for us to, like, entrust our children to other folks. Um, These are people where, like, God has put folks over all of his children, right? And he says, watch over them. And what do they do? Hey, you know, I'll watch over them later. I'm busy getting rich. Hey, I'll watch over them later. I'm building, busy building a kingdom. Hey, I'm busy, like, becoming famous. Can you go ahead and, like, like I'll get to it. Hold on. Hey, my people are getting slaughtered in the south. Well, but you know what? I, I'm, I'm, I'm busy here. Um, and this, I mean, this happens, right? Like, for us, you know, we don't, we don't earn our way to heaven, right? If anybody's ever told you you're going to earn your way to heaven, they're lying to you. You will never be good enough for God to decide, like, oh, you, you should come on up here. Like, we are welcomed into eternity because God loves us so much that he sent his son to, like, take punishment for the sins we commit. And so when you do something wrong, when I do something wrong, when we rebel, when we offend God, when we, you know, do whatever it is that we're doing that is, that is wicked, like, like, we're forgiven because Jesus Christ took punishment for us, Right? Now, that is fantastic news, but what will happen sometimes, right, is that that news will take shape and we'll start moving in the right direction. We'll develop a relationship with Jesus. We'll start growing, and then all of a sudden, you know what? I got this thing going on on Sundays. I, 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 I'm going to start missing, or you know what? I would really love to get up and spend some time praying, and this is my biggest struggle in life right now. Like, I, no exaggeration, this is my biggest struggle in life. I, I would get up early and pray, but I'm not feeling well today. Or, but I couldn't get to sleep last night, so I'm tired. But I've got to deal with the kids right now. But um, I really want to finish this novel I'm reading. But, and everything else in the world starts piling in, and it chokes out, like, this spiritual life that we have. Because we're called to know Jesus. We're called to walk with Jesus. Um, we're called to be, like, like, obedient to Christ. And, man, there are so many fun things to chase after. Aren't there? There's so many fun things to want. There's so many fun things that, like, we're not really supposed to do, but are so much fun. Um, and eventually it chokes out who we're supposed to be. We become unfruitful um, because, because the world, like, worldliness kills us. Um, 
there's another spot. I, I'm going to kind of work my way through Jesus' teachings here. There's another spot where Jesus is, is, is out traveling, and he has a fellow come up to him, like a really rich guy, and this guy comes up to him and says, hey, what do I have to do to go to heaven? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, right? Don't kill anyone. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. You know all those, right? You go, oh, I've done all those. And Jesus says, okay, you're, you're good. All you have to do is sell everything and follow me. And the guy's like, what? Yeah, just sell it all, give it away, and follow me. And the guy says, well, I, I don't know about that. And he gets real sad, and he walks away, and we don't actually even know what happens to him. Um, and what Jesus does is he turns to his disciples and he says, um, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only the difficult, the, excuse me, only with difficulty will, will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to pause there in that passage. What's he talking about? Is he saying all rich people will go to hell? I, I don't think that's what he's saying, actually. Um, what he's saying is, and, and it's hinted at in the story, where Jesus says, hey, Follow these commandments, and the commandments are all about loving your neighbor and treating your neighbor right, but none of the ones about loving God more than anything else. And so when Jesus gives him a command related to loving God more than anything else, the guy won't do it because he loves his money more than he loves God, right? Ultimately, anything, 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 I say it three times to emphasize it is a big deal. Anything that is more important to us than God is a problem. For these three judges, it was wealth. It was prestige. It was royalty. Um, I know folks that turn alcohol into the most important thing in the world, who turn family into the most important thing in the world, who turn sex into the most important thing in the world, or vacations or pleasures or hobbies or whatever. Anything that takes the place of Jesus, like, becomes a problem. It becomes the thorns that choke out the good things in our lives. Um, does that mean I can't love my family? Does that mean I can't enjoy sex? As a matter of fact, it doesn't mean that. Um, I love my family better because I love Jesus, right? I enjoy, like, like the things in my life better because I enjoy them in light of who Christ is in my life, right? There have been times in my life when I made all sorts of things into idols that were not Jesus, and I worshiped all kinds of things that were not the Son of God, and ultimately that stuff leaves you empty. I read an interesting story about a, a boy who was in London, um, or who grew up in London and went to the countryside on vacation, and he was sitting there, like, watching the, the birds in the sky, and he said to his mom, he said, oh, wow, those poor birds, they don't have any cages to live in. Um, like, the parallel here, watch this. The cages we live in are the things that we worship that are not God. They take away the freedom that we have to be who we're meant to be. Right, whether it's comfort, whether it's ourselves, whether it's wealth or popularity or whatever, like like our own self righteousness is the in the case of the Pharisees. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, "Who then can be saved?" But Jesus looked at them and said, "With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible." Um, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, "Listen." God can break through anything. He can break through our idolatry. He can break through our worldliness. He can break through the thorns that are choking us out. But ultimately, like, like it's going to come back to us learning to love Jesus more than we love anything else. Um, it means that we learn to like see money as a way to like like serve our fellow man and like like to to honor God. It means that we see sex as a part of an expression of our 
marriage relationship, like, like how God designed us to be. Family as an opportunity to be good stewards and raise up children who honor and worship God. Like all of these things that God has given us, they're amazing and wonderful, but they're there to serve him. For these judges, it becomes the opposite. The kingdom that they're sent to watch becomes the thing that serves them, right? God's stuff serves these people, their king, right? Or they want to be king. They never quite make it. Um, and this is what the problem is. Ultimately, if we make things into, into um, things that serve us, if we take God's world and use it to serve ourselves instead of using it to glorify him, like it, it kills us spiritually. Um, it's kind of a heavier message, isn't it? Um, I, uh, I, I was reading about this, and I was thinking, well, what do you do with this? Um, ultimately, what you do with this is um, you, you chase after Jesus, right? I, I realized years ago my, my wife and I have not always had a perfect marriage um, because she's perfect and I'm not. Um, and, and what I figured out, the best way to fix my marriage was to, like, follow Jesus better than I ever followed him before and, like, follow his teachings, and then all of a sudden those teachings made my marriage better, right? Because I was less selfish, and I was less self-centered, and I was less temperamental, and I was less mean, and I was less all kinds of other things. I'm not perfect yet, but I got better because of that. Um, we become less worldly by following Jesus, right? By recognizing we're only, like, saved. We're only valuable because Christ died for us. Our, our like, everything comes out of Christ's death and resurrection, like, our salvation in him. Like, and the more we pursue that, the more he changes who we are. Um, the more I love Jesus, the less money means. The more I love Jesus, the less important possessions are. The more I love Jesus, the less like, like work becomes the only thing that matters in life. Um, all of this stuff begins to fade away the closer we get to Christ, the closer we walk with God. Because, because he fills us up with something new, he makes us different. Um, Dwight Moody was asked once by a, by a fella, um, now that I've been converted, do I have to give up the whole world? And Moody responded, no, you don't have to give up the world. Um, if you have a good ringing testimony of the Son of God, the world will give you up pretty quickly. Um, what he's saying there is, you know, all of this stuff I love instead of Jesus, it'll become just less important because I'll love Jesus and all of a sudden that stuff goes away. I dated a handful of, like, really, like, neat girls in college. I met Jessica, and I forgot all about them, right? And one of them ever held a candle to her because I loved her that much that none of them, it didn't matter, right? All of that stuff disappeared. Um, I love Jesus so much that nothing else holds a candle. Um, and even my love for my wife is in light of my love for Christ. Like, these things all come into line. And then we become something better than what we would be otherwise. Because otherwise we end up being little kings, right? Trying to establish our kingdom in this world. Trying to build up our power around us and our comfort around us and everything else. And at the end of the day, it's all an illusion. Because these guys, like, they all, all three of them died, right? All three of them died and never established a kingdom. The, the city, the fellow named after himself, it ain't named after him anymore. Um, there's a great line from... Let me see if I can find it real quick. It was in my notes, and I'm going to... Uh, there's a book, Ecclesiastes. One of the things with Ecclesiastes, it's written by Solomon, who's one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. And Solomon had like a thousand wives, okay? I mean, this is a guy who, you know, if he, if he wanted to do it, he did it, right? Like he built cities, and he built roads, and he named things after himself, and built statues about himself, and 
and, you know, everything he ever wanted. And in the end, like he wrote this book, Ecclesiastes, looking back on his life, and it's really depressing because he, over and over again he says things like, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? What he's saying there, he's like, oh, man, you love money, but the more you love money, the more you want. You know, you, I, I know folks who are addicted to pornography, and they, they love that, but the more they use it, the more they need. I know alcoholics, the more they drink, it's never enough. They've got to have more. Um, I know folks, family, I love my family, and I just need more time with them, and it becomes an idol. All of this stuff, the more that's there, the more we want. Ultimately, what Solomon comes up with is the key to being happy with life is following God and being happy with what he's given us and being thankful. Um, In the New Testament context, it is love Jesus, follow Jesus, grow close to Jesus, be who Jesus meant you to be, and there's joy in that like, like nothing you will ever find. My challenge to you this week is to look at your life and ask, like, what, what's important? And actually, here's the easiest way to figure this out. Um, you sit down with a piece of paper and figure out percentage-wise what you spend the most money on, right? Or where you spend the most time. I had a point in time in my life where I figured out that I spent more time at work than I did at home, period. That includes sleeping. <laughs> That's not okay, right? Um, where you spend your time, where you spend your money, where you spend your life like is an indication of what really matters. Does that mean working hard is wrong? Nope. It means that making an idol out of work is wrong. Like how are you with Jesus? Like where does all this stuff fall in relation to you and Christ? Like is he the king in your world or are you making yourself into king and trying to edge him out? Um, and if it's one and not the other, like has it gotten worse? Because that downhill thing, right, it, it happens. It happens in real life. I remember the worst parts of my life. It all got worse a lot faster. And there were days I woke up and thought, wow, how would I get here? Um, but ultimately, Jesus was willing to bring me back. He's willing to bring any of us back. But it comes down to pursuing him and chasing him and loving him and desiring him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us today. Help us to, help us to keep our eyes on you, Lord. Help us to put aside all the things that... that we want to fill ourselves up with all the little idols and all the little kingdoms we try to build lord help us to set that aside and pursue you and and nothing but you in jesus christ's name we pray amen y'all have a good day